Hi, it's Jen. Just a quick note before we start the show. This episode was recorded before the shootings that took place this weekend all over the country. But in light of the most recent news out of Buffalo, New York, we've decided to revisit this episode. That story, like many others, is still developing. And for all the latest updates, be sure to visit NPR.org or tune into your member station. Thanks for listening. I'm a gun owner, and I'm fine with the idea that people can own guns. There's a difference between Cheyenne, Wyoming, and New York City, and perhaps there needs to be a difference in the approach to gun ownership between the two. I do believe that licensing guns and controlling their distribution is uh, extraordinarily important. Since I don't think we're going to get gun control, I'd like to see ammo control. The way I would do that would be have ammunition sold only through state stores that are very close to police stations. There have been almost 200 mass shootings in 2022. That data comes from the independent organization, the Gun Violence Archive. Incidents near a public school in Washington, D.C., on the New York subway last month, and this weekend at a California church and a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, have the public concerned about safety in shared spaces. But an emerging field of research called behavioral threat assessment is being used to prevent mass shootings before they occur. After the break, we'll talk more about what behavioral threat assessment is and how it works. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember, to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Ongoing struggles in any of life's roles can lead to fatigue and feeling helpless. Prioritize yourself by talking with someone. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist. Be matched with your therapist within 48 hours and get 10% off your first month of online therapy at BetterHelp.com slash 1A. We're discussing mass shootings in America and behavioral threat assessment. Joining me now is Mark Fulman. He's the National Affairs Editor for Mother Jones, and he joins us from UC Berkeley. Mark, thanks for being with us. Thanks. It's great to be here. You've spent much of your career reporting on mass shootings in America, including building a database for Mother Jones that tracks 40 years of mass shootings. What have you learned from years of reporting about why they've become so prevalent in our in our culture? Well, a decade ago, I began digging into this, um, you know, with some key questions. How often does this happen? Who's doing it? How are they doing it? What are the circumstances? Um, I was really startled to find at that time that there was very little information available. There, w- there was no public database uh, on mass shootings in the country. This was after the massacre in the movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. Uh, 2012 turned out to be a particularly awful year for the problem. And what would turn out to be around the time of, of, of a rise, of the beginning of a rise in this trend of, of, of the problem of these public attacks. And one of the things that I learned early on in beginning to collect data on all these cases and analyzing it was that 
there were actually a, a number of things that we were getting wrong about this problem, that, that there are some big myths that we have about what these mass shootings are and who does them. So to be clear, the focus of this book is not gun control policy, yet that's where much of the conversation is. Mark, what is behavioral threat assessment, and and why do you want to shift the conversation from gun legislation to that prevention method? Yeah, so long ago, digging into gun violence and reporting on it, um, I I became pretty frustrated with the ways in which it felt stuck, the political debate and, and and battle over policy in our country over regulating firearms. Um, I think a lot of people are familiar with the reality of that and the fact that we have so many guns in the country. So I was asking the question long ago, you know, what more could we do to try to deal with this problem? There has to be another way at this besides that debate. And I began to learn about behavioral threat assessment in the course of, of my work studying mass shootings. Um, what what threat assessment is, is essentially a, a prevention model that is community-based that seeks to uh, identify patterns of behavior and circumstances that lead up to mass shootings and using that information to then work to intervene, to head it off before it happens. Um, and this is a field that has existed for about 40 years now and has learned quite a lot in studying forensically th- these cases, uh, both attacks that are known to the public and then also a wide range of threat cases that aren't known to the public because they have been stopped before they turned into targeted violence. According to the Gun Violence Archive, there's been a rise in mass shootings across the U.S. over the past two years. We're expected to surpass pre-pandemic numbers in 2022 with 175 mass shootings as of today. What's contributing to this rise of mass shootings as we enter a new stage of the pandemic? It's a complicated question. Uh, there are a lot of factors that play into this. And and part of the issue here, too, Jen, is that these are different there, – there are different aspects of this problem. Um, so the way that we define a mass shooting is, is challenging and complicated, and there are different ways of, of quantifying it. So there are some data sets now that describe a much broader set of mass gun violence. Um, I focus on a, a much more sort of narrow uh, version of the problem to try to understand the attacks that we see in public places that are planned attacks, meaning there's a period of time ahead where the perpetrators are developing their idea for an attack, planning it, preparing, and then deciding to go out and do it. And this is distinct from a lot of the attacks we've seen, again, recently in shopping malls and in around nightclubs where you have more sort of reactive violence in, in its nature, where you have groups of people who are are at odds and, and turning to gun violence as, as, as a way to deal with those, those conflicts. So, um, you know, th- Trying to put a finger on what's causing the rise in this violence is, is a difficult question. I think, in short, you know, we have a, a lot more kind of political volatility and extremism going on in our country in, in recent years. Then, of course, you add in all of the stresses of the pandemic on top of that. And we have a record number of firearms in circulation. There are estimated 400 million of them in the country now, and they're loosely regulated in a lot of places. So I think when you put all that together, you have a very combustible mix. So just to be very clear, because we got this email from Michael who says, please explain which definition of mass shooting you're using. You're talking about planned attacks, things that are that are that are planned ahead of time with a a specific purpose of some sort. That's right. And that furthermore, are not explained through uh, more conventional uh, explanations of motive like, you know, 
gang violence or uh, armed robbery or things of that nature. We're talking about attacks that have been regarded in our media coverage and in our politics as as senseless, as inexplicable, what we call these senseless tragedies because we can't really understand what would lead a person to walk into Sandy Hook Elementary School and kill 21st graders and teachers or to walk into a movie theater and and kill dozens and, and wound dozens of people. Um, so there's that and some other criteria too that, that speaks to the complexity of tracking these. Um, another issue with this, a challenge with it, is defining the number of victims. And it's something of an arbitrary choice. Uh, what we use in the Mother Jones database hues to what the FBI has used historically and, and some leading criminologists who study mass murder, uh, which is four or more victims killed in an attack, typically by a lone offender in a public place. Uh, there are broader data sets now that are used commonly to, in, in discussion and news coverage where you hear about hundreds of these attacks. That's talking about cases where you have four or more victims injured or killed. Um, it's a much broader set of, of violence in, in that respect. There was a shooting in Washington, D.C. in late April, just a few blocks from our radio station, WAMU. A shooter in an apartment building targeted a school, injured three adults and a child. Fortunately, there were no deaths in that case. But here's D.C. Police Chief Robert Conti speaking with reporters that night on April 22nd. Inside of the suspect's apartment, we've recovered over six firearms to include several long guns, multiple, multiple rounds of ammunition. And, and handguns as well. This investigation is ongoing. As we work with our partners, our federal partners from the FBI, ATF, and all the other partners that I mentioned, we will get to the bottom of this. We will find out what the motive is. And right now, we do not have that answer. When police entered the shooter's apartment building, they found he'd already died by suicide. Mark, why is it often so difficult for investigators to determine a motive behind mass shootings? Well, that's one reason right there, the, the suicide. That's uh, very common in these cases. One of my early findings with the research into mass shootings was that the majority of these mass shooters of this particular type of attack are suicidal. So these are really murder-suicides. Um, and often you have a, a, a range of factors that are playing into what leads to these attacks, behavioral warning signs, circumstances, life circumstances, and it's it's complex. So often in these cases, there isn't a, any single factor that explains them, despite a strong, I think, public appetite to understand in, in simple terms why someone would do something like this, but it's never simple. Now, your book focuses on, again, preventative actions law enforcement, teachers, co-workers, and others can take before someone becomes violent. But how often do the types of mass shootings you looked at involve extensive planning and public actions that can get on people's radars? The vast majority of them. Uh, in almost every single one of these cases, there is a long trail of behavioral warning signs. And this is one of the myths that we repeat about this problem, that uh, the idea that no one could see it coming, that these attacks just sort of come out of nowhere. But that's not the case. There are many, many cases where people around a perpetrator often have opportunity along the way to, to sense something's wrong, to see something's wrong. And some of that comes out in media reporting, too, after the fact. But it tends to be, I think, obscured by this idea that these are insane, inexplicable attacks. And I should add, too, that the process of trying to intervene through the method of threat assessment is a highly collaborative approach. So it's bringing together the, these different experts in mental health, in law enforcement, in education, in workplace personnel, 
to collaborate to try to evaluate a specific case and intervene constructively before it's too late. And let's add another voice into the conversation. Joining us now is Marisa Randazzo. She's the executive director of Threat Assessment at Ontic. The software company provides threat assessment training for K-12 schools, universities, and corporations. Marisa, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Mark, our understanding of threat assessment begins in the latter half of the 20th century, and it started because of celebrity stalking and attempted political assassinations. How were the actions of violent criminals targeting high-profile individuals being analyzed and interpreted by law enforcement during the 70s and 80s? Yeah, so back in that era, uh, there was a real urgency to try to deal with a a rise in in political violence and in celebrity stalking. And uh, some experts in forensic psychology uh, began collaborating with uh, agents at the U.S. Secret Service to try to understand better what led up to those attacks in hopes of doing better to prevent it. And they began uh, engaging offenders who were incarcerated or institutionalized. And there's actually an important tie-in here to uh, the history with anti-abortion extremism and violence that was going on in the 80s and 90s. as that was happening, these researchers were trying to get access to offenders and they needed some help navigating the budgets and bureaucracies of the federal government. And it turned out that there was some targeting of a U.S. Supreme Court justice that would help them. Uh, this is a story that hasn't really been told before that I have in Trigger Points. Uh, Justice Harry Blackman, who authored the 1973 opinion in Roe v. Wade that legalized abortion, was was the constant target of violent extremists. And in the mid-1980s, there was a bullet that smashed through the window of his apartment um, in Roslyn, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. Fortunately, he and his wife weren't injured, but it was obviously a, a harrowing experience. And Several years later, when the experts at the Secret Service and, and their, their partners in mental health were pursuing this work, Justice Blackman would help them launch the project by helping them secure funding and access to assassins. Marisa, you were with the Secret Service during the 1990s when that organization was engaged in the exceptional case study project. It examined years of attempted assassinations on prominent public officials, Trying to learn about the motives and behavior of the suspects, how does the foundation of that research inform the work you do now? Well, that research actually set the stage for so much of the work we've been able to do since then, studying other types of targeted violence in our K-12 schools and colleges and universities and workplaces. So one of the things that, that the exceptional case study showed was it really kind of dispelled a lot of misconceptions about what people had previously thought about violent attacks. So we used to incorrectly think, well, if someone's made a direct threat of violence, that's specifically what they're going to do, then we should be worried. But if they haven't done that, we don't need to be worried. That was wrong. We found the ECSP showed that that's wrong. We used to think, well, if someone had a history of mental illness, then we needed to be worried. And if they don't, we don't have to worry. We know that is absolutely incorrect. So the Exceptional Case Study Project showed a bunch of findings, and what it set the stage for was a way to study what we call these sort of uh, infrequent but high-impact violent events. And so what happened was after the Columbine shooting in 1999, the Secretary of Education 
reached out to the Secret Service and said, look, I've heard about the Exceptional Case Study Project. You warned so much about people trying to harm public officials and public figures. Can we take the same approach to study this violence in our schools and incidents like the Columbine High School attack? And it was at that point that we started a partnership, the Secret Service, U.S. Department of Education, to go out together to figure out how can we understand school shootings and what can we do to prevent those horrific acts of violence. Well, here's an email we received. Why do we bother with motive in mass shootings? Marisa, what can you tell us? Well, motive is really helpful for us to know to figure out how to prevent future attacks. And I think that's the piece we try to focus on. We see a lot of media reporting where they are focusing on motives because just as human beings, we want to try to make sense of things that are horrific and, and chaotic and scary. But from a research standpoint, and then most importantly, from a practitioner standpoint, as a threat assessment professional, it's helpful for me to understand motive of past attackers So when I'm working on a current case of someone who has threatened violence at their workplace, they were terminated and and now people are scared they're going to come back and and kill their supervisor, kill their coworkers, to understand what has motivated previous attacks and what has might be motivating this person that I'm looking at helps me figure out a roadmap for intervening and getting them away from plans of violence. And and here's let me let me add this. What we've seen is that while the specific motives differ, one common thread throughout the vast majority of these attacks that that Mark's been talking about here is that people resort to violence when they feel like they have no options left. They're operating out of desperation. And what we're able to do when we work in active cases, look at, okay, is this person feeling desperate? Do they feel like they've run out of other options? What problem are they trying to solve? And as a threat assessment practitioner, we then look to see how can we help them solve those underlying problems. And when we do that, their need for violence, their plans for violence disappear and, and, and we get them on a better path. Mark, the FBI and Secret Service have identified a desire for notoriety as a motivating factor for mass shooters. How has that come up in investigations, particularly when it comes to mass shootings in schools over the past two decades? Well, there, there is an astonishing amount of evidence in the cases, in the research going back decades, that perpetrators and, and plotters of these kinds of attacks are interested in getting attention. And I think this speaks in part to what Marissa is talking about, that there's a sense of desperation and a desire to be heard, to be helped, to be a somebody when the person feels like a nobody. And that's one way in which these perpetrators think they can get that because they see the massive amount of sensational media attention historically on these cases. Um, This also speaks to what's known as the copycat effect, where you have quite a lot of case evidence showing that perpetrators are looking to predecessors for inspiration. They're identifying with them and wanting to imitate them and in many cases outdo them in terms of the impact that they have. So this this is a serious factor in a lot of these cases that, that the field has learned about that I dug into more with my reporting as well for the book. And it comes up in some cases that I chronicle in the book that 
are cases that are success stories where you had troubled high school students, deeply troubled, in distress, in crisis, who were starting to think about planning violence. And part of that mix that the threat assessment teams were seeing was this growing fixation on the Columbine attack or on the Parkland attack and seeing that as a valid way out of their desperation and and rage and despair. I think we need to listen to epidemiologists who have said that there are patterns to gun violence, there are patterns to mass shootings that should be heeded and uh, acted upon when those signals are present. This isn't something that always is a complete surprise. There are things that can be predictors or at least indications that it will happen soon. So if we start listening to the people who know stuff, maybe things will turn out a little better. Mark, K-12 school districts across the country began adopting their own threat assessment programs starting in the 2010s. And you, you followed a threat assessment program in the Salem-Kaiser School District in Oregon over several years. There are two case studies in the book where students plan violence that's stopped, and it illustrates how the program can be effective. Talk us through the experience of a student you call Trevor. That name's been changed to protect his identity. What were some of the warning signs the school saw, and, and how did staff respond? Yeah, so Trevor was a high school student who had left the school for a period of time because of some behavioral health issues, was living in a residential care, and then was returning to the school. And so he was already on the threat assessment team's radar um, and they took another close look at his situation as he was coming back into the school, try to make sure that every, everyone around him and he would be safe. And one of the things that started happening with him was that he was dressing in a certain way uh, that one of the, the counselors working with him noticed and didn't actually know what it was, but brought it to the team. And it turned out that the outfit he was wearing was an imitation of one of the Columbine shooters. This was the problem I was talking about earlier, that Trevor had started to become fixated again on that case and that, that the mythology around Columbine, a lot of which is wrong, and I talk about that in the book as well, um, he had also um, started to have some other issues going on with, with depression and uh, some other behavioral warning signs that were coming up. And so the team approached him and, and said, look, we need to give you the tools that you need to come back to school in a way that's going to be successful. How can we help you? And here are the things that we're going to need you to do. And they worked with him to, to closely monitor him, to make sure that he had good transportation to and from the school, to provide him counseling support, and some other constructive measures of that nature to get him reintegrated into the school. He had also remained very fixated on the idea of bullying, which relates to some of the mythology around Columbine, um, the threat assessment team was able to, to determine that there wasn't really any bullying going on uh, with him. But that's an important issue, too, with this problem, that often there's the perception of that in these cases. Whether or not it's real or perceived, in a certain sense, doesn't matter from the perspective of the, the troubled individual who's developing a deep grievance and starting to develop violent ideas around that and wanting to maybe seek revenge or justice. Um, that kind of motivation is in the mix in a lot of these cases. So the team worked very intensively to steer Trevor away from that kind of thinking. And I was able to follow this case over a period of months and see the ways in which these constructive interventions were starting to help him to change his behavior, to improve his mood. And they were able to put him on a better path. 
We're discussing mass shootings in America and how to prevent them. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. And remember to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. Now let's get back to our conversation about mass shootings in America. There's a field of researchers, counselors, teachers, and law enforcement working to prevent future attacks. Hi, this is uh, Michael from Duluth, and I'm just thinking about how mental health is just so incredibly important in every realm of our lives, especially in the topic of this, because um, in my heart, I believe that a mental health crisis typically does lie somewhere in the timeline of before and after these types of things happen. And so, I mean, I know that there are typically some way to see um, some sort of crisis unfolding in someone's mind. Thanks for sharing that, Michael. You can share your perspective. How do you think we can prevent the, nas- the next mass shooting? Tweet us at 1A or send us an email at 1A at WAMU.org. Um, Mark, Michael brings up an important point about mental health. An FBI investigation from 2000 to 2013 into active shooters found only a quarter were diagnosed with a mental illness. 5% were known to have psychotic disorders. What's our, connect- our understanding of the connection between mental illness and mass shootings? This is really important because I think that the role of mental health in mass shootings is widely misunderstood um, in the sense that the general public, we tend to regard these as people who are all completely insane, who are detached from reality, um, who, as we were talking about earlier, the idea that they just snap as if this is some impulsive, crazy act. And none of that is true in these cases. Uh, There's often a very rational planning process going on that leads up to them. Now, that's not to say that these are mentally healthy people. They're, they're, any mass shooter, by definition, is mentally unhealthy in some ways. And these are people who have a lot of deep problems going on. Um, but again, it's to refocus, I think, on the, the set of behaviors and circumstances that lead up to an attack that is really a much more useful way to think about the problem rather than just regarding it as totally crazy. Because there are specific constructive ways to address the mental health issues that people have in many of these cases, even if they aren't suffering from clinically diagnosable disease, which in many cases the the research shows they are not. Here's an email we got from Kelsey who says, please talk about gender and gun violence. It's been left out of too many conversations that mass shooters are overwhelmingly male. Raising a son while aware of that dynamic has been mind-blowing. Now, researchers in behavioral threat assessment have found a link between mass shooters and men with a history of violence at home. Dr. Garen Wintemute is the director of the Violence Prevention Research Program at the University of California, Davis. He spoke with 1A producer Chris Remington. We need to talk about intimate partner violence. One of the insufficiently recognized factors associated with mass shootings um, is domestic violence. The best study that I'm aware of looking at these data in aggregate comes from an investigator by the name of Lisa Geller. Upwards of 60% of mass shootings either were domestic violent events themselves or involved a shooter uh, with a history of domestic violence. I want to talk about masculinity specifically, but first, Mark, how can domestic violence lead to violent action outside the home? Well, it is an indicator of uh, a person's capacity to commit violent acts and, and in some ways 
depending on the situation, can correlate with greater risk for lethal violence. That's a, another area of finding for the field of threat assessment. Um, and I think that the notion of of what has come to be called more broadly toxic masculinity. This has become more important and more on the radar of people working in the field of threat assessment. And in my research and reporting for trigger points, finding more and more of this in mass shooting cases in recent years, uh, there's a growing kind of convergence of issues of domestic violence, of violent misogyny, of political extremism. Uh, we see this in more cases in recent years, and it's an area of growing concern. It's in the background of a lot of mass shooters. And I think, as Marisa was indicating earlier, this is something that people are attracted to when they spiral into a state of desperation and rage and become very entrenched in that. The risk of, of those factors becoming important in the behavioral circumstances and warning signs grows. Here's an email from Carla. I'm a parent of a middle schooler here in Arlington, Virginia. Our local middle school has had a few troubling incidents that concern many of us. Having our public schools use behavioral threat assessment would be incredibly reassuring, empowering, and helpful. What advice do you have for parents advocating to have their school districts use this approach? Mark, I'll come to you first, and Marisa, I'd love to hear from you as well. Well, I think part of the the imperative here is for this method to be better understood, uh, explained by the, the practitioners who have expertise in it and um, in terms of setting it up, the resources needed. It does require some resources, but in, in my reporting on it, I've, I've seen and, and, and heard from leaders in the field that often you have a lot of the infrastructure already in place, especially within a school system where you have school counselors and psychologists and you have administrators who, you know, part of their work obviously is to take care of the safety and well-being of students in the school. Um, so I think that, you know, a, a broader awareness of this approach could be helpful to that. Um, in places where it's done well, it, it has been remarkably effective in a number of cases. I try to really show that through my storytelling in the book. Um, so I think that's the way that it could start to become used more widely. It is actually growing quite a bit. The threat assessment is now required in K-12 through public schools and in colleges and universities in a handful of states. And, and this is a relatively new development just in the last few years. Marisa, your thoughts? Well, and, and Virginia is one of those states. Mark's absolutely right. So we've seen legislation passed in a couple of states, Virginia, Florida, Texas, actually requiring their K-12 schools or universities or both to have threat assessment teams and threat assessment training. And Virginia especially is a place that makes it really, really easy for schools to do this. They provide free training on threat assessment. They provide model policies and procedures. They provide tremendous support to their schools. So for the person who, who wrote in that comment, if they are in a Virginia school, they could reach out to the Virginia uh, Department of Criminal Justice Services or the Virginia Center for School and Campus Safety. You can uh, research those. Um, and they should be able to find out you know, what resources are available. And they can ask their school directly, do you have a threat assessment team? And if so, what are you doing to address these situations? Because sometimes okay. teams are operating in the background and it's really helpful for parents to know, oh, our school has a team or our district has a team and they are on top of these situations. Marisa, I'd love for you to briefly address this concern. Paul emailed us about Paul says, we have a problem in our society in which we task schools with solving all our problems. This compromises schools' core educational missions. Labeling students as threats or even potential threats undermines educational relationships. How would you respond to that concern? 
I, I agree that we, we task our schools with so much. And right now, as we are coming out of two years of, of pandemic conditions, our schools are especially overtaxed. So threat assessment can actually work really well, not only in schools or districts, but with other threat assessment teams built in the community alongside. So in Mark's book, he talks about the, the Salem-Kaiser School District, not only having their own team, but a community-level team based in the community of, of Salem, Oregon, run by the, the Salem Police Department. But again, it's multidisciplinary. So not only can schools handle a case directly, but if, if they have a tough case, they can turn to that community team to say, look, we need help managing this risk. We need your help figuring out what solutions we can attach to the situation, help monitoring and working directly with this person we think might become violent to make sure that they don't. So this is the new wave that we are starting to see around the country of communities developing their own community-based threat assessment teams. And, and it may be out of run out of a police department or out of a you know, victim's advocate office, a prosecutor's office, something where they've got some authority to bring in agencies that can help with all these different aspects. It is not a policing function. It is not a criminal justice function. It is a multidisciplinary preventative effort to keep our communities safer. Mark, very briefly, in just a sentence or two, how do experts see behavioral threat assessment evolving in the future? I think it's a dynamic model. So it's it's evolving and, and seeing what the changing risks are. Social media is a big factor now where it didn't exist only a handful of years ago. And so I think, you know, ultimately, there's a lot we can do to really demystify this problem of mass shootings, to understand it more clearly, and to do more work of this nature of community-based violence prevention to intervene in a lot of these cases. That's Mark Fullman. He's the national affairs editor for Mother Jones. He's also the author of Trigger Point, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. And Marisa Randazzo. She's the executive director of threat assessment at OnTech. Mark, Marisa, thanks for your time. Today's producer was Chris Remington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.